0: Hey, everybody. My name is Alex, and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. Now, if the recording sounds a little weird, it's because my old ass setup is having a moment. Um, it, it, it had to restart, and it did not take it well, so it'll be fine. Ultimately, it just needs time, like all old things do. Um, but I want to thank everybody before we get started on what we're talking about tonight for listening to the podcast lately because I've been having a lot of fun doing it. I hope you like my experiment. You guys seem to like my experiment of the Sunday edition where I just, well, hey I walk my dog while doing it because late, straight up, I just forgot. But also I, I just recorded for as long as I thought was, I had space in my brain for not like to hit, Thirty minutes, which is what I've been doing previously um but if you like that, then that's kind of what I'm leaning towards doing because it's less stress on me to make the thirty minutes, and also it's more it just i think it produces a better podcast for you, the listener so um I hope you like that. I also want to thank everybody who's been listening to the sweetness and lightning episode i like I like thinking about that show that show is. The kind of a, a perfect version of a Yosuke show. It's just a warm hug of a show, and I, I just kind of love it. Um, that said, I watched something interesting today. Literally, like fifteen minutes or something before recording this, I finished it. And that show, that thing, was on HBO Max, and it came with um. Courtesy of their of their very wide ranging Studio Ghibli deal that they deals that they did with Studio Ghibli, and that movie was Earwig and the Witch. Now, if you aren't familiar with the like HBO Max was probably one of the biggest deals of HBO Max to date. Um, they HBO Max is part of the like, big, and I promise there's a reason why I'm doing this. I'm getting to it. Um, but HBO Max is the big, um, it's part of the, one of the big streaming apps in this quote unquote streaming war. If you wonder what I mean by streaming wars, you can literally go listen to a podcast earlier in the feed where I talk about the streaming wars and consolidation. I talk a lot about like the bad parts of capitalism on this podcast because as a audience for media that is streamed. Primarily, you know, otaku should be aware of that stuff because it's what determines what's on each app. So, whereas, say, you know, one piece is on one app, it might not be on another because there was a media deal done. Um, a perfect example is um, when HBO actually also featuring HBO Max. When HBO Max first launched, it had all of the Harry Potter movies in one place where you could watch. One to seven, no question that. You could even watch, um, the, uh, the, like, other movies, the, um, mag- Magical Beasts and Where to Find Them, or whatever it's called. Um, but, a, a few months after, they just vanished. And the reason why they just vanished was because, HBO Max didn't lock down the rights to those movies. They didn't lock down the rights to be the streaming partner for those movies. And so now where are they? They are on Peacock, but you have to pay for Peacock plus or whatever the fuck they call it. um, Because somebody did a media deal and got the, and got the entire Harry Potter library, library of films on Peacock. And, Normally, that's a really, and generally, even with something like the Studio Ghibli deal with HBO Max, that's a big problem because it means that all of the media that you love, the best way to probably always be able to watch it is to straight up just go buy the fucking stuff. Just go buy it in a physical form, Blu-ray if possible, DVD if fucking necessary, VHS if you're a nightmare psycho. Um, But basically, it means that you don't control the access to the stuff that you are capable of watching unless you pay for a quite frankly unacceptable amount of streaming services. Um, To give you an idea, I pay for, just so I can like enjoy the hobby of watching anime. I pay for Crunchyroll, which is one. I pay for High Dive, two. I pay for Funimation, three. I know that Crunchyroll and Funimation are owned by the same place and may collapse into each other. But still, there's three right there. And I pay for Netflix, four. I pay for HBO Max, five. I pay for, um, what's it called? Um... Amazon six. There's six. There's six streaming platforms I pay for. Oh, and I also pay for who? Seven. Um, and I'm sure there's an eight in there. So let's say let's say eight. I'm approaching. I like. I'm quickly approaching. And that's just for anime. If you like expand it a little bit, you approach ten different streaming platforms that you are. Um. That you are subscribing to just to like normally watch the stuff you want to watch. Especially if your interest is not only in one genre or like avenue of media, like if you're interested in more than just anime, you can easily like stack those things to insane levels beyond 10 even. And the reason why I'm saying this is because up until HBO Max launched, there was nobody who had the, the only way to like watch every Ghibli movie was really to like go and buy like a giant Masters Collection um box set of the entire of Ghibli's entire discography. Um which I was always I was just always on the verge of doing because it... Not even necessarily that I love all of the Ghibli movies, although I've said this in the past. Um, Prince of Monoki is probably the first Ghibli movie I watched, and it is one of my favorite movies of all times. Um, I have that in Blu-ray and DVD because I'm insane. Also, Also, I have a digital version. And I prefer all of those to the one on HBO Max because it's not the version that I remember. Also, it's subtitled. Um, which I know sounds sacrilegious, like, why are you watching an anime movie dubbed? I'm like, because that's what I grew up with. Leave me the fuck alone. Um, There are no right answers to this question. But before they did this deal, that was the best way to see Studio Ghibli movies, was to either go see them in theaters when they came out, or go buy the, like, Master's Collection box set, whatever was available at the time. And a that would always, that would always eventually be out of date because you'd have to keep adding movies to it because new movies come out. But at least you start with like a solid collection of them, whatever the current collection of them, and then as new movies come out, and you go out and you get like the steelbook version and add it to add it to the shelf, so to speak. But in the age of coronavirus in the, in the pandemic age we live in. It's super not safe to go to movie theaters, and you can you can still like go buy a steelbook collection on, um, on Amazon or whatever, or from directly from the Studio Ghibli store. Um, but, and I encourage you if if Studio Ghibli movies are like your thing, go do that because it's very clear that HBO Max offered. Shift ton of money, Studio Ghibli. Like, let us be an exclusive American streaming partner, please, for like however long those movies are going to be on there. And then at some point, they may probably, probably not super soon, but like in the future sometime, those movies could just poof right off HBO Max, and you don't have access to that entire section to, to the entire Studio Ghibli discography from that moment forward. Um but so when they announced this it was missing a part. And that part was um the their plan for dealing with oh no, people don't want to go to fucking movie theaters when the air is poison. Um when with circulated air when that circulated air is potentially poisonous somehow, a la COVID-19. So what they started doing is they started doing this thing, and they did it first with a terrible movie, a movie that everybody was like kind of looking forward to because the first Wonder Woman was excellent. But then in retrospect, when you see all the parts of night of Wonder Woman 1984, like, Oh, this movie was always going to kind of be dog shit, but it was going to kind of be, um, But we were just hoping it wasn't in our souls, because you look at the production credits of that movie, you're like, oh, they replaced every woman in the production side with a man. Of course, this is weird chauvinistic garbage. That's why it feels weird. Okay. But, so they did it first in that movie, and they've been doing it with all these movies since, and back on the 5th of February, they released the new Studio Ghibli movie, which is also the first fully CG Studio Ghibli feature-length film. And that film is, as I said at the top of the podcast, Earwig and the Witch. And after watching it, I have, I have a bunch of odd feelings about it because I don't – it's certainly not a top-tier Studio Ghibli movie. It's not – it's not trash because it still has that Studio Ghibli charm, but it feels a lot closer to something like um, that um, that movie that the Studio Ponox debut movie. Um, I have the commemorative ticket. It was um, Mary and the Witch's Flower. Because it was this, it was this movie that it, so the, my problem with *Mary and the Witcher Flower* is it really didn't, it didn't serve as like a, it didn't have a really solid, really, um, spaced out enough story structure. It wasn't, it wasn't paced well. is really what I mean to say, but. What ended up happening is that happened to, I think, to Earwig and the Witch too, and also, but I think it was for a different reason. So just hear me out. So much of what Studio Ghibli pro- produces in terms of charm is because of the skill of its hand animation staff. And what I mean is if you go and watch, um, If you go and watch, probably the best studio, um, example of this is um, in their in their um, in their discography is "Spirit Away." If you go watch "Spirit Away," there's all of these little touches, and actually, um, the "Spirit Away" special disc from like 2008 or something, like 2009 or something. Talk about this. Um, there's all these little touches to the way the characters move and animate and express that give them this like that A let you see why Disney wanted to release these wanted to like have their clutches around these movies for a while and B adds charm to the characters. So do the scene the the scene specifically that I actually talk about in the um extras of the, in that um in that edition of the movie, in like original two thousand eight DVD release, where Chihiro is putting on her shoes and she taps her shoe the, the ends of the toes of her shoes against the floor to like make sure they're on, and it's just like nice little touch of something that that they that as humanity to a character that is. That is human in terms of, like, the portrayal, but is just a bunch of lines and colors, basically. And also, if you—and I love bringing up—you you, you know I'm about to bring up this story. There's a moment in Kingdom, in Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, and I know I've talked about this a bunch on this podcast, but shoot me on me, where— Hayami is looking out from the um, window from the room in the hotel that you press in. And he's looking at the roof line outside the window. And they, like, superimpose, in the movie, they superimpose the scene of Ashitaka running across the roof of Irontown on top of it. And you realize the reason why that, scene feel has so much weight and feels so real it's because it is and it is it is this like specific view in reality that this man this artist has a personal relationship with and has had a personal relationship with in his entire for his entire career potentially and it it has it adds those things add to a movie. It and that brings me to what felt off about this movie. I think because of the CGI of it all. Um. A the movie looks fucking great. The movie looks great in the same way that the um, on the loop fir- Lupin the third, the first movie that I talked about a couple episodes, ago, a bunch of episodes ago in this you can find it in the podcast feed in whatever you're using with me right now. Go find it. It it's so aware that it's a CG movie that you can't accomplish things in the same way that um say a hand animated movie can. Like if you go look at um so like the this season's CG dumpster fire um X arm Axe Arm is very much like, it's like, but what if this anime was 3D? And it ends up looking like trash for it. I mean, for a bunch of other reasons. They, like, censor things that shouldn't be censored because they can't figure out how to fix the clipping before go time. It's, it's bad. But what ends up happening with um, things like... Lupon and things like, um, Earwig and the Witch is they, and for Lupon, they had some practice in this. They released a bunch of Lupon video games, at least two Lupon video games in the, um, PS2 era. So, like, they knew how to reasonably accomplish, um, making Lupin a 3D character and making those characters 3D. Because it had like a treatment existed out there in the world, and they did a really good job of like making cohesive look in the three D treatment in three D treatments for this movie. But the thing I would say is that the animation when it for when it first starts off and it varies it. Various point throughout the movie, it it feels stiff. Like the 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 movement of the characters has this stiffness to them that I doesn't feel intentional, and it there's there's a human there's a studied human quality to the movement in a ghibli movie that is like these are old these are old hand animators these are old hat hand animators is really the best way to put that who have spent their careers watching people in the park and drawing them and it just it it feels like this was studio ghibli's first time directing a 3D animated um, film and that they just weren't they did, didn't get the descriptors right when they were saying like I want them to move like this. They they could have said they probably said like I want um asshole witch lady to like turn stir the pot all this stuff or giving them storyboards and what needs to happen there is, and um, I think the red turtle thing that um, Miyazaki did because he refuses to not do things, um, probably did, he probably did this because he, he's a control freak, but um, there needs to be somebody advising, the, like the 3D animation staff to like help, to like no like. Stop there and add this movement in, add this to this movement flow so it feels less, um, it feels less stiff. It feels less like from point A to point B and more like, and has more of a natural movement to it. The other, the other thing I noticed about this movie is I feel like there were parts cut out. Because there are parts where you don't – the the end of the movie, which is all the illustrative moments from the movie, includes, like, mo- parts of it that are in this little girl um, earwig's future that you don't get to see. And it just – like, I, I wanted more out of the movie. The movie is very clearly going to a – like – Going to a place. But it's like, it needed more time to get there than it had. So it, where it, where the movie ends, it feels like could have been the third and end chapter of the movie. Where like, because of, so spoiler alert for Earwig and the, um, for Earwig and the Witch, which I usually don't do because it's been, stuff has been out for a while, but this is fairly new and it might take you a while to get around to it. So I want to say, spoiler alerts right here. Um, but, so, we, the movie starts out with Earwig's mom. I don't know her name. Um, but Earwig's mom is, like, running from something. And she drops her daughter off, drops her daughter, Earwig, off at an orphanage. And Earwig grows up to be about maybe like six, seven at this orphanage, and then she's adopted by this big blue haired witch and this witch's partner, um, the Mandrake. And the Mandrake is, he looks like, if you've ever seen John Dickerson from, um, from CBS News, he looks like John Dickerson, but, like, if John Dickerson was a vampire, I guess. Um, but... So Earwig goes to live with him, and she is basically adopted to be a lab assistant to this witch. And she gets fed up with it, and hijinks ensue, but she finds, she plays this tape she always had that is that she doesn't know is the two people she's living with, um, the Mandrake and the uh, witch with the blue hair, and her mother's old band. And this is where it starts to remind me of Mary and the Witch's Flower, in that they there's this undercurrent of an of a different story here that's not just that's a family story but like a this is about my family before I got, before I landed here story. And what that ends up meaning is it ends up meaning that um, it ends up being the more interesting angle here, but that they kind of not so skillfully avoid because it, the, the other thing about this movie is it's very clearly a kid's movie. And the reason that, and so one of the reasons why, um, Studio Ghibli got picked up by Disney is because one of Disney, one of Walt Disney's, um, core principles was he never wanted to treat children like they were idiots. He never wanted to treat children like they were, like they were less intelligent than any other viewer of film. And if you look at all, at, at all of the very least Disney Renaissance movies they are very much that they are very much like no you are like you're smart enough to get this kid we know, we know what's up and it was and that's one of the reasons why Disney married so well with Studio Ghibli is because all Studio Ghibli's movies are meant for people of all ages. Like, you can watch My Neighbor Totoro as a kid or as an adult. Same thing with um, Kiki Delivery Service. Same thing even with something like Princess Mononoke. Princess Mononoke is viewed by a lot of adults as being extremely violent, extremely, like, gory. But it is at its heart, like, an action movie that a kid could watch. Like, a you know, a 13-year-old could totally watch. Dude, dude, dude. Um something like um Monoki, and it would be fine. Um but so Irwig's biggest I think biggest defense is it 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 feels like a kids movie circa like two thousand five ish. It feels like a kid's movie in the way that DreamWorks animated movies feel like kids movies. But without all the like mild adult humor that's like packed in on one side, and it it and that on top of the feeling that the movie doesn't um that the the that the animation style is kind of. The animation style has moments of awkwardness because it's a new me- because it's a new medium for the studio, and the um and and just the the incompleteness of it, uh, it makes it probably if you're like gonna rank Studio Ghibli movies, it, not the bottom but like close to the bottom. It's not a bad movie, that's the thing. It's not, like, I I found myself having fun and smiling during it, but I also, even if I was a kid, I would, and even as an adult, they were like, I want to know more about the witch band. I want to know about, like, the, like, cool witch band that they keep showing me glimpses of, but you never get to see because of, like, all this concert venue stuff that you see, um, uh, kind of midway through the movie and it's, um, it's just, it's very clear that, that wasn't, um, that, that was supposed to be a storyline that didn't Flesh out. And the, uh, the, so the, one of the most interesting things about, um, Eerie and the Witch is usually when you see Studio Ghibli, you see, um, you see the Studio Ghibli logo and then you, it just starts the credits. This is probably the first film where I've seen studio, studio Ghibli logo and then a second, like, second one of those pale blue screens with, a partnership um, with a little like two two lines of text that explained a partnership, and that is almost certainly because this is entire CG, entirely CGI, and Studio Ghibli is almost an entirely hand animated operation. And Studio Ghibli has done um, really commercial stuff before. Uh, they did a made-for-TV movie back in the 90s that I absolutely love because this thing is just like this thing is a mumblecore movie that this is the ocean waves is the most mumblecore movie that ever the ever mumblecore it is like just hey man hang out and I I, I um I did it as I if you remember my promo you can go on my um Instagram looks this up for the first Sunday edition, all of the pieces of that promo were taken from Ocean Wave. Ocean Wave is straight up just like, come on, man, just hang out and vibe with me for like an hour and a half. And it's, it's, I find it great. Lots of people find it weird, but I find it kind of fabulous and vibey. And in the same way that, um, Lost in Translation can be vibey. I find um, Ocean Waves to be vibey in the same way. But the so they've done stuff like aimed for stuff before, and they have you know like interpret it. How Moving Castle is an interpretation of a book. It's not like everything that they do is perfectly original, but as far as I can remember, this is the first time I've seen, like, a partnership screen. And like I said, that's because they clearly probably knew, like, we are out of our depths if we want to do a 3 DCG movie. But that's the way the industry is going. But if you know anything about the... um when Disney revived its hand animation staff to do princess and the frog, it it, hand animated movies still absolutely have a place in, you know, popular culture and are still loved not just by children, but by people like me. And I presume some of you listeners as adults everywhere who grew up with hand animation as like a daily, as like an almost daily part of their lives. But, you know, studios want to be able to claim that they've done stuff and they want to be able to experiment with new tools and all that stuff. That's just the way art rolls. So, I. And a thing I ended up noticing a lot throughout this whole movie is since. Oftentimes, Studio Ghibli movies feel like their own, have their own unique style in terms of anime. They're definitely anime movies, but they don't look like other things. There are moments in um, Iwig and the Witch where stuff looks like One Piece. Stuff has this feel that promotes something like One Piece. And not just Studio Ghibli. It's not a bad thing, it's just an interesting thing to me because so often Studio Ghibli is so on the realistic side of anime animation and just has such a much more anime, much more traditional anime feel that leaks into it that results in this almost One Piece esque look and feel, especially weirdly, weirdly in the eyebrows and it, it, that's actually pretty that's also pretty common in mary and the witch's flower like mary and the witch's flower looks a lot more like modern anime than most studio ghibli stuff does because it was done by studio panock which broke off from ghibli when ghibli announced that they were going to try and not do full length animated features and then, you know, somebody stepped in me old man Miyazaki's cornflakes and he's like, How dare you? I will crush you with my artistic prowess. <laughs> <laughs> Anime was a mistake. Now you need to die. Um but the result is A pretty interesting, pretty unique look and feel to this movie that has, in like I said at the top of the episode, has a very aware that it's 3D and not just like cell shape, fancy cell shading of hand animation Um, look to it because it is. Because everything has, like, depth and volume and weight in a way that, like, like I keep going back to you in my head. X-Arm does not. Like, you watch ten seconds of that thing, and, like, you're like, ah, I need to be drunker than I am to deal with this. Seriously. I, I need to be drunker than I am to deal with this right now. Leave me alone, X-Arm. And it... The other thing about 3D animation though is is that right now unless you wanna swing for the fences and you wanna and your goal is to make something that is as stylistically rich as something like um into the spider verse is, all really good Sweetie animation for movies has a look to it, and the best way I can explain this is the Super Bowl just happened. Um, and I'm no fan of fucking football, believe me. Although I do think it's a, it's a, it's a crime again, it should be a war crime to fucking <laughs> get, get Rob Gronkowski out of his beautiful house and away from his jigsaw puzzle and put him in his fucking shook jello brain on a field and say run boy run because that just that seems abusive considering how fucked up his brain might be um but all but what i'm trying to say is all super bowl commercials have this look to them have this like particular color grading and particular diet sty- like lighting and stylistic choice look to them, that is really glossy, but all looks like the same kind of gloss across all the commercials, no matter who does them. And it's not, but it's not like it's high end. Um, it's not like it's high end, a high end fi- film or movie look. It's its own weird thing, and that is true of a lot of high end well done computer animated um CGI film. If you look at um if you look at something like Lord Farquad from Shrek, his skin texture feels a lot like skin texture for people here or skin for people in earwig or skin texture for people in um for people in, um, in Lupin the Third, the First. And Lupin the Third, the First has a lot of visual similarities to this movie, to Earwig. To, to and that's because, like, just not enough people were super skilled at this, which I believe Doodoo Ghibli is. It was super skilled animation and stylization have gone beyond just the this is our first dab at this give us time. Whereas a team like um the team that did Into the Spider Verse, it was not their first dab at it, and the studio said, you know, go for goddamn broke, shoot for, shoot through the goddamn moon, go for it, and they did, and that resulted in a, like, movie and a, in a movie that has this, like, style dripping from every single pixel of it, and it's incredible, and I, if I had to say, if I had to say anything, I think to get to ultimately where you would want to get for, um, something like, um, Earwig or something like, um, Lupin or something even like Ghost Michelle 2045, which has a lot of the same stylistic feel, even but at a lower end, because they rushed that fucking thing, I'm sure. Um, as both Earwig and Lupin, as both the Earwig and Lupin films, is you need like a the team needs to be able to take a low risk first stab at it, and I think the Earwig was perfect for that. But B, you need to go back after it, and you need to like take what you learned and refine it. Because the more you refine it, the more you drill down on it, the m- closer you'll get to where you have full control of the tools to be able to make whatever your brain wants to. And I, I, I don't think, I think in Studio Ghibli's first 3D film, it was pretty good, but as like, a Studio Ghibli movie, it was not great. One thing I will say is they had... They had great music in it, and I think that, like, this is going to be a weird comment. I know this is going to be a weird fucking comment, and I don't care. The... Choice of setting the entire thing in like a small British town, which is a very Studio Ghibli fucking move, is, and to have all the actors, all the voice actors, be British for the American dub, puts it in the realm of stuff like, and this is so dumb, Wallace and Gromit and Chicken Run, which is a very different class of movie than Spirited Away. Or even Arietti, And it it softens the blow, it like immediately familiarizes you with it somehow in a way that like I'm like, oh this is a Walls and Gromit style movie. Cool, I guess, whatever. It's not. To be clear, it's not. But it feels that way at first blush in some weird ways. And it just I've wanted more of that story to be up front than it was. It has this, like, it's like da- it's dangling a carrot in front of you, and it never lets you have it. And I think that's always a mistake for movies, because it, you, like, create this deeper thing that you don't even get close. To. They create this deeper missiles to this, to this, like, found, to this family, basically, that they never explore. And, Studio Ghibli is not one to really do sequels to their movies. Like, it's not a thing they've ever been interested in. It's like, a, they're very one and done. They're almost, they're an entirely exclusive one and done studio. The closest thing you could probably say to being not one and done is Castle Cagliostro because that's using an existing IP in the form of lupon. And Lupin goes on from Cagliostro and before Cagliostro, and Cagliostro is like a special chapter. But that's the closest thing you could say to like they have a franchise piece. And I just knowing that no suspecting that you'll never come back to either that they'll never come back to like the Earwig thing. I just like, I'm like, you could have shifted this around a little, you could have had a little less of the messing around and it could have just been like, you could have focused in more on this, like on this, like rock and roll on this rock and roll family in earwigs past. That they were clearly trying to get to, and it just didn't seem like it came together well enough. And on that note, if you like the podcast, um once again, I'm sorry for the audio quality. My computer is still having a boot up moment, which is hilarious. Like, it, it's functional. It's just, like, it's being weird about it now. Um But... If you like this podcast, I'm sorry about the audio quality. This is being recorded on my iPad Pro using the um, Voice Memo app because yay. Um, but I have been Alex. You've been listening to Lunchbox Radio. And until next time, I will talk to you on Sunday.